Welcome to Clippings, the official podcast of the Council for Nail Disorders, where Drs. April Schachtel and Catherine Stiff take a closer look at articles and clippings published on all things nail disease. Listeners can suggest articles for this podcast or topics of discussion by sending an email to kristen.cnd at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode nine of the Clippings Podcast, where we review nail literature and present it to you. I'm April Schachtel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Catherine Stiff. Hey, April. I am bringing you a research letter that is currently, as of September 2021, in press in the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology, titled Clinical Features and Treatment Outcomes of Retronychia a multi-center retrospective analysis in Korea. The authors are Bo-Ri Kim, Kun-Hyung Hur, Su-Ran Lee, Soyun Cho, Hyun-Soon Park, and Jae-Ho Moon. This was a retrospective study investigating the clinical features and treatment outcomes of retronychia. They included patients with retronychia from three referral centers in South Korea from 2015 to 2020, The inclusion criteria were proximal nail plate ingrowth, proximal nail fold inflammation, and interruption of nail growth. 44 patients were included, which were 80% women with an average age of 45 and a mean disease duration of 22 months. 90% of the retronychia was in the toenails, in which case it was always the great toenail. The fingernail involvement was seen after cast immobilization and a brachial plexus injury, and in those cases, two to three fingernails were affected. In 61% of cases, there was a known precipitating event, primarily trauma, but other events included hiking, walking too much, and even one case after nail surgery after a matricectomy and nail avulsion. 77% of their patients were classified as stage one, which was defined as xanthonychia with mild paronychia and interrupted nail growth. The remaining 23% were stage two with severe paronychia and proximal nail plate elevation. The common clinical features they found in their patients were onychomedesis, xanthonychia, subungual hemorrhage, and malalignment. These features were similar to previous studies. They also found concurrent onychomycosis in 25% and bacterial infection in 22% of their patients. In 32 of 44 of the patients, there was nail avulsion or spontaneous shedding, and in those cases, there was improvement in all of them. 10% of the patients had a recurrence of retronychia after nail avulsion with a follow-up time of about a year. The 12 remaining patients who didn't have avulsion or spontaneous shedding were treated conservatively with topical steroids, topical oral antibiotics, and topical or oral antifungals. 70% of those patients had resolution, but 30% had no improvement over an average period of nine months. These patients who were in the second group that were treated more conservatively were mostly patients with fingernail involvement or mild stage one retronychia. Things I learned from this letter were that fungal and bacterial co-infection were fairly common and should be considered when evaluating a patient with retronychia. They didn't specify exactly what the bacterial infections were, 
however, and I would want to make sure not to treat the nonspecific paronychia with antibiotics, given that it's more of an inflammatory process from the foreign body of the nail plate and not typically in, an infection. It's also important to consider retronychia with the appropriate clinical presentation, even if it is a fingernail, particularly after a cast. The nail findings of onychomedesis, xanthonychia, subungual hemorrhage, and malalignment should be clues for this diagnosis in a patient who presents with chronic proximal nail fold inflammation. It confirmed to me that avulsion is very successful and the treatment of choice for severe retronychia. For patients with mild disease hoping to avoid a procedure, topical steroids seem to be a reasonable option as well, although with a lower success rate. The limitations of this study are the retrospective design and only Asian patients were included. Also, evaluation for fungal or bacterial infection was only done when infection was suspected, so we may actually be underestimating the rate of co-infection in these patients. Catherine, tell us what you read about. I chose the article, uh, Treatment Recommendations for Nail Unit Toxicities, Secondary to Targeted Cancer Therapy, based on collective experience and evidence-based literature review by Drs. Megan Wetzel, Adam Rubin, Hannah Hanania, and Anisha Patel, which was in press in the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology in July 2021. With increased use of targeted cancer treatments, we are seeing more dermatologic adverse events due to these medications, and this is becoming a hot topic. Uh, we actually had a great talk by Dr. Beveridge from University Hospitals on Oncodermatology at a recent meeting. The skin toxicities are well documented, but the nail toxicities are not as well characterized. These targeted therapies can lead to thinning of the nail folds, thus increasing susceptibility to trauma and increasing risk of developing perinichia or onychocryptosis. According to the National Cancer Institute, the severity of nail adverse events is graded 1 through 5, with grades 3 through 5 considered high grade. Nail loss, perinichia, and infection can be graded up to three, whereas the remainder of the nail toxicities may only be categorized as grade one. So that suggests we may be underestimating the severity of some of these toxicities. High-grade toxicities have been reported with panfibroblast growth factor receptor inhibitors, such as erdafitinib. Through the author's literature review, they found the most commonly reported nail unit toxicities were perinichia and periungual pyogenic granuloma. Other nail changes associated with immune checkpoint inhibitors include onycholysis, onychoschisia, perinichia, psoriasis, lichen planus, and dermatomyositis. The authors proposed that clinicians counsel these patients on the risk of nail toxicities and educate them on how to protect their nails from mechanical trauma. This includes trimming nails short, avoiding cuticle manipulation, wearing protective gloves, cotton socks, and closed-toe wide-fitting shoes. They also should limit wet work and avoid potential irritants if possible. The authors also discussed treatment recommendations for these adverse effects. 
For acute perinicia with edema or pain, the patient should do daily dilute vinegar soaks for 10 to 15 minutes and apply topical iodine and topical steroids to the nail folds twice daily. If pus is evident, culture and treat infection, plus avoid the topical corticosteroids. In cases of onychocryptosis, the patient can insert dental floss under the ingrown nail and or tape the nail fold away from the nail plate. Onychocryptosis can also be managed by placing a plastic tube along the lateral edge of the nail to encapsulate it. The um, plastic tube reminded me of the article posted on the Council for Nail Disorders Instagram by Erdem et al., published in JAD February 2021, that mentioned suturing a small piece of sterile IB tubing into the lateral nail fold as a stable splint for the treatment of onychocryptosis. Another nice little treatment pearl. Uh, for periungual pyogenic granulomas with onychocryptosis, treat with partial phenyl chemical matrix ectomy. If onychocryptosis is not present, there are a variety of treatment options, such as scoop shave removal, plus hyfrication, silver nitrate, antiseptic soaks, and topical corticosteroids plus topical antibiotics. The authors have a nice table for the management of drug-induced and drug-exacerbated psoriasis and lichen planus. The treatment algorithm is similar to the management of these conditions in a patient not on targeted anti-cancer therapy, except that immunosuppressants are reserved for dose-limiting toxicities and should be prescribed in close conjunction with the oncologist. Some other pearls the authors discuss. To manage onycholysis, trim the onycholytic nail plate to its attachment point. To treat a refractory abscess or hemorrhage, perform a partial nail plate avulsion. The pseudomonas superinfection is treated twice daily with a topical antibiotic solution. And they also mentioned that biotin supplementation is not recommended for brittle nails, which makes sense because of its interference with lab tests such as troponin and thyroid hormone. Overall, I thought this was a great summary of nail toxicities seen with cancer therapies and helps to remind us to counsel patients on some prophylactic measures they can take to help reduce the risk of these side effects. Thanks, Catherine. I agree. This article put a lot of things together for me and is going to be a really helpful guide for treating patients who have nail side effects from targeted anti-cancer therapies. Catherine, thank you for joining me on this episode of Clippings. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. To all our listeners, please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Let us know how we are doing and which articles you would like us to review on the show by contacting kristen.cnd at gmail.com. <laughs>